Hello everyone, I'm Kate Braug and this is the Pivotal Moment. Together we will talk to 100 of the most inspiring and powerful women entrepreneurs in New York. They will tell us about what it takes to set up your own company, how to be the architect of your own career and how they are reshaping the business world. I'm an entrepreneur myself and I'm looking forward to hearing their stories along with you. Captain Tammy Jo Schultz is an American commercial airline captain, author, inspirational speaker, and naval aviator. Known for being one of the first female fighter pilots to serve in the United States Navy, active duty Captain Schultz became a pilot for Southwest Airlines. On April 17, 2018, as captain of Southwest Airlines Flight 1380, she safely landed a Boeing 737 after the aircraft suffered an uncontained engine failure, with debris causing rapid decompression of the aircraft. She saved 148 lives that day. In Captain Schultz's memoir, Nerves of Steel, she shares her story from growing up as the daughter of a humble rancher to breaking gender barriers and receiving wings of gold to managing compound emergencies in landing Southwest Flight 1380 and revealing insight into true heroism. Captain Schultz holds a split degree in pre-med and agribusiness from Mid-America Nazarene and is a member of the Women in Aviation Advisory Board, working to empower women, and especially young women, around the world and at home. Dami Jo, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thank you for the invitation. I'm very excited to have you here. I read your book cover to cover and thought it was truly inspiring. I think most of us probably know you from your incredible performance as a captain on flight 1380, but you're so much more than that. And I think Nerves of Steel really highlights that. What propelled you to write the book? <laughs> I think there was a number of, of reasons. Uh, one was the people on the flight of 1380 and the crew, the crew and the passengers. Um, we all had such a different experience and longer than what you would think being 20 minutes of, of um, kind of the unknown. And I think a lot of, of us had trouble uh, moving on because the people around us felt like, Oh, you lost an engine. You know, people lose engines probably every day uh, in aviation. And our struggle had been a little more in depth than that on the way down. And so I feel like sometimes when you put all the pieces on the table, you get the cockpit point of view, you get the cabin point of view. It helps to put that puzzle together. And instead of pieces missing and always calling your mind back to it, the pieces are all in place. You can look at it when you want to, or you can put it aside. And so I thought that would be a good way to do that. Also, I wanted, I, I think... I really wanted people to realize that, I mean, so often the challenges that we face in life are part of the grooming of making us ready to meet those next challenges and have all the tools we need to do it. There were so many things in my background that seemed unfair, uh, being told no about things when, in fact, uh, you know, I should have been able to do them or I could have been able to do them. And so timing seemed unfair. And then some of my assignments seemed unfair. Some of the people were not fair. But honestly, it's it's our it's our attitude. It's our determination and uh, what we do with it. And uh, so I 
I work with a lot of underprivileged kids, and uh, I think a lot of them might feel like their beginnings determine their direction in life. And I think we always have a, a choice in, in, our, in our direction. Absolutely. I think it's fascinating to read which life experiences allowed you to perform the way you did during that emergency, because behind every hero, there's a story that's often filled with trial and error. And I think often we don't hear about those stories. I do want to walk through Flight 1380 with you, if you don't mind. And I know you probably have done this thousands of times, but I'm just so curious to hear firsthand from you what went through your mind during that flight and during that very unforeseen happening. As I understand, the first 20 minutes of flight 1380 were rather uneventful. It was a routine flight from New York to Dallas Love Field, a flight that you had flown numerous times before. As you were climbing and as the aircraft reached 33,000 feet, you, and this is how you describe it in your book, you feel like you're being T-boned by an M truck. What was the first thing that went through your mind? The very first thought was that we'd been hit by another aircraft. I thought we'd had a midair. We had just been told about traffic crossing kind of behind us. And there's been other times in, in my aviation career where traffic was called uh, just mistakenly at three o'clock when it was really at nine o'clock or uh, different ranges. And it, it was such a jolt that both Darren and I, when we compared notes on the ground, we both thought, We've been hit by another aircraft. That's how uh, sudden and harsh the hit was. I, I think um, just, you know, at that point, I think I had 33 years of flying under my belt. And and, and sometimes the aircraft didn't uh, behave uh, properly. So uh, the first thought was just to keep control of the aircraft. And we kind of have this axum uh, really the four main emergency procedures in life are maintain aircraft control, analyze the problem, take appropriate action, and maintain situational awareness. And so it was very natural just for uh, both Darren and I to respond by grabbing the yoke but and, and uh, trying to control the nose of the aircraft with the rudder because with that explosion and the... Um, kind of the shredding of the cowling of the engine, uh, there was so much drag on the left side that the right wing, of course, spun forward, which created a lot more lift. So then you get that snap roll to, uh, we caught it passing 41 degrees, angle of bank. So the first thing is just to grab a hold of the yoke, get the rudders, pulling the nose back. And uh, I, I, I have to say my my time as an out of control flight instructor in the navy and was uh, it was kind of amazing. I didn't think it was so uh, rapidly reachable by my brain, but everything kicks in. We have such an uh, amazing ability to remember and be resilient in our reactions that I think Darren and I may have surprised ourselves in in just having that correct reaction because of experience and training. I think it's important, though, to explain to the listeners what your senses were going through, because smoke filled up the cockpit, oxygen masks were dangling from the ceiling, there was a deafening roar because of the punctured window, which at that time you didn't know anything about, the aircraft was shattering. So 
all of your senses must have been completely overloaded. You just told us how you regained control of the aircraft. I was thinking there must have been a moment when you realized that that day might just be the last day of your life. How did you deal with that? Like you said, there was there really wasn't anything that we could focus our eyes on immediately because of the shuddering and smoke and also the condensation that ra- that happens with the rapid depressurization because we were at 32,600 feet when it happened. And when you go from a pressurization of 7,000 feet to 32,000 feet, it's the difference. Um, I would say everyone has seen a rapid depressurization. When you see a balloon pop, that's a rapid depressurization. And um, my mind, I think just uh, adrenaline always makes us uh, think a little faster and, and time seems to kind of spread out a little. Um, and I really did think the shuddering didn't calm down. A lot of times when there's, you know, you blow a tire or something, there's that initial uh, bang or, or hit, and then it settles down. But this didn't settle down. It seemed to increase and change. And, and I thought, I, I'm just not sure we're going to keep all the, the pieces we need on this aircraft until we get to a, to a runway. And, and that kind of put my, my mind on this speed train of thought. Um, and it really did lead me to those cliffs of what if, I would say. And I thought it would be the day I meet my maker. And I got off that train and took a step back from that precipice and just realized I won't be meeting a stranger. And I do feel like that's a big source of the calm that I had to face the rest of the 20 minutes. It's incredible to hear how you were able to draw that amount of strength from your faith. And I get goosebumps when I hear you speak about it. A technical question. Did the autopilot disengage upon impact? Everything disengaged. Uh, it's, it's built so that certain pressures break it out of autopilot so that in case like you see uh, an aircraft coming or something like that and you're, you're coupled up with autopilot, just pulling back, pushing uh, different uh, pressures on control systems will break it out automatically. And this had control pressures uh, every uh, on every facet, every axis. So uh, it it uncoupled on its own quite quickly. <laughs> it did what it should have done. <laughs> yes. So from um, that gigantic impact to regaining control of the aircraft to getting back to the ground, what was the part that you feared the most? Was it, um, you know, communications with ATC? Was it the actual landing itself? What scared you? You know, it, it's interesting. I I don't remember having a fear and kind of going back to that. I mean, if the worst thing that could happen is you meet your maker, then everything else is better <laughs> uh, from that. I mean, not and not that I... I don't look forward to that someday, but the process of getting there is not what I look forward to. <laughs> so I I would say I was so uh, busy mentally because aviate, right. navigate, communicate is the the hierarchy of, of priorities in, in aviation and keeping control of the aircraft. Uh, it had a propensity to want to flip uh, towards the left side where all the drag was. Uh, on the left engine. So keeping control of that and 
I initially just asked for the closest uh, suitable airport from ATC and they know what kind of aircraft we are. And, and they definitely gave us a direction, but before they gave us a direction, uh, Darren, who had his map uh, scoped out in a larger uh, larger scale than I did. I had zoomed in whenever they called traffic to keep an eye on on my traffic. Uh, but he had it zoomed out and said, hey, we've got Philly at about 50 miles to the left. And it was a known, it was long runway. It was, we knew they had medical. And so that was just a, a much better choice for us. So that was taken care of in the first few moments. And being, being high altitude, certainly it caused the situation to be much worse than it would have been at lower altitude. But at the same time, it gave us time to, to think, to maneuver. And the, I think some of the hidden things that happened were all down closer to the ground when we started trying to add power and realized that we really couldn't use that good engine's power, which is what we always plan on. We train for every year. And Boeing makes an incredibly uh, sturdy and redundant uh, systems are redundant in the Boeing. So um, it did a great job getting there, but just aerodynamics say that if you have a lot of drag over here, you can't add a lot of thrust on the other side or you fly sideways and aircraft don't do that well. So um, that was kind of some of this stuff that we were dealing with. Tammy Joe, I'd like to listen to the radio recordings of that flight. And for the listeners, during this recording, we hear you, Tammy Joe, communicate with the control tower at Philadelphia International Airport. Southwest 1380, turn, uh, just start turning southbound there. There's a Southwest 737 on a four-mile final. We'll be turning southbound. Start looking for the airport. It's off to your right and slightly behind you there. And uh, altitude is your discretion. Use caution for the uh, downtown area. Maintain, uh, advise you to maintain at about 2,200 for uh, the MVA. Okay, could you have the uh, medical meet us there on the runway as well? We've got uh, injured passengers. Injured passengers, okay. And are you, is your airplane physically on fire? No, it's not on fire, but part of it's missing. They said there was a hole in, and uh, someone went out. Um, I'm sorry, you said there was a hole and somebody went out? Southwest 1380, it doesn't matter. We'll work it out there. Uh, so the airport's just off to your right. Report it in sight, please. In sight. South 1380, airport's in sight. The remarkable thing about this radio recording is that you say so incredibly calm. You even sound more in control than the air traffic controller. What goes through your mind when you hear these recordings almost three years later? Because I'm... I think we have an incredible memory when there's emotion attached to it and not knowing at what airspeed we we would not have control of the aircraft anymore made every moment precious and I'm I'm amazed at first of all just how incredibly complex and resilient God made our minds to be able to deal with all the things, because we really had an unscripted combination of emergencies. Uh, when we practice our emergencies every year in the simulator and are tested thoroughly on them, we do them one at a time, possibly two. But 
you know, we had engine explosion and uncontained engine failure and severe damage, uh, rapid depressurization, severed hydraulic lines, severed fuel lines. And then we also had the inability to use that power from the right engine. So right when we thought we were going to turn out and come in at a long, very stable approach, get all of our checklists done, which in aviation, we, you know, as a pilot, we live by checklists. Uh, we may do flows to, ke- to start things, and then we do the checklist to ensure they're done. So uh, what goes through my mind is how precious life is and how resilient our minds can be. And it so matters what we spend time putting into our minds because you want a deep uh, pool to pull from whenever you're in a corner like that. My mind goes very much to my crew. I I had an incredible crew that day. I never speak of Flight 1380 without calling them out by name. I had Darren Elliser as my first officer. He was getting ready to upgrade to captain. So he was a fount of uh, knowledge. And uh, honestly, if I hadn't had somebody so great to work with, so easy to work with in the cockpit, that could have been a difficult day because we had to do things different than we've ever practiced. We've never landed flaps five, even in the simulator, but just having flown it, I knew we had so much drag when we couldn't add much power. I didn't want to change the wing and have asymmetrical uh, flaps. I didn't know how damaged the flaps were. The front of the wing was certainly chewed up. And um, I wanted lift, the max amount of lift with the least amount of drag. Flaps 15 is normally a single engine um, landing. It gives you a different uh, deck angle as well as air speeds and when you change your airspeed, you change your vertical speed to stay on glide. So it, there's just a lot of changes. And Darren was great about bringing up the ideas. Sometimes we used his ideas. Sometimes we didn't. He never was offended. And I tried never to be offended either whenever we didn't use my idea. <laughs> Probably wasn't, and, and my, wasn't a lot of time to be exactly, offended either. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and my, my flight attendants... Um, I get goosebumps when I say their names, Rachel Fernheimer, Shanique Mallory, and Catherine Sandoval. Uh, They were incredible flight attendants before this happened. And this certainly hallmarked just how committed and compassionate that they were, not just to their job, because quite frankly, Kate, their job and Mm. by protocol and procedure, they should have just stayed buckled up in their, in their seats. It's a, it was more than a rough flight. But because they unbuckled, they totally changed the ending of that day. I'll give you just a couple of examples. When they unbuckled and headed down the aisle after the initial shock of it was over, and I made a PA, which I'm surprised they even heard, but I thought I have to try. And I just made a quick PA when we knew where we were going and said, we're not going down. We're going into Philly because we dropped like, I don't know, about 20,000 feet in the first five minutes. So I know people could feel that we were certainly descending faster than normal. And and once they heard that we had a destination, those ladies unbuckled, headed down this rough aisle that gave them bruised ribs, sprained back, cuts. And because of their actions, 
some of the passengers also looked around to see, okay, what, what can I do? And Andrew Needham, Tim McGinty, Peggy Phillips, these are people that could have easily stayed. But when they went through the cabin, they found a mom with a six-month-old baby that she just couldn't bring herself to get the mask on the baby because it was crying and fighting. And it was it was a hard situation if you were by yourself uh, with a baby. And then, of course, whenever they got to row 14 and the help that was needed there. Um, it is really inspiring because they really did way more than they had to. Over to row 14, where a window was punctured because of the explosion and passenger Jennifer Reardon was pulled out. Unfortunately, she didn't survive the flight. She endured fatal injuries to the head, neck and shoulders. And she was a very powerful woman in her own right. She was an executive at Wells Fargo and probably a woman that I would have interviewed on this podcast. How did you process what happened to her? I know that the entire crew prayed for her and grieved when we found out the outcome. We prayed for her family. I'm a firm believer in just how sacred life is and how precious it is. So we couldn't help but rejoice that we had made the runway. It wasn't a given until we touched down. As we came in for landing, we kept sagging lower and lower on the glide slope. We weren't sure we were going to make the runway, but the survival of many will never eclipse the loss of one. I think my husband, Dean, who's also a, a Southwest captain. And who was supposed to fly that day. Yes, it was actually his trip. <laughs> I know. Um, as he says, the gift that keeps on giving. Um, <laughs> but he reminded me of some beautiful ancient words that said, there is a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. And I do think that was the day that um, I realized that could all happen in one moment of time. And um, so I would say, I do think uh, Jennifer was probably one of those very extraordinary people. And um, she, is, she is missed. This is quite hard. Missed and um, definitely not forgotten. Tell me, Joe, um, I want to jump to the period after the flight, because in a couple of hours, your life changed from being an airline pilot with a very impressive background to being a national hero. And you were interviewed on all the news channels you can imagine. You were invited to the White House. You shook hands with President Trump. What did you think of all that attention? I mean, did you even have time to think? Well, I, I have to say I was incredibly grateful. Everyone that we met and dealt with was so kind and, and wonderful to meet and deal with. Obviously, it, it kind of made me glad I didn't have any skeletons in the closet. because uh, <laughs> This was the time that they were going to come out. They, would, they wouldn't come out. Uh, the, the news, I, I understand their job is to, to find out things and... I had spoken to the crew. They all agreed that because there was a loss of life on our flight, we would not interview or speak to anyone for a month, at least, because 
we, we really wanted to let that family have some time to grieve without seeing, you know, the crew on, on TV or anything like that. We did go at the invitation of President Trump, and he was kind enough to uh, allow us to bring our spouses or family. So we did do that within that month. But during that month, there was a lot of questions asked of, in my little town of uh, you know, my neighbors, my family, um, girls I flew with in the Navy and things like that. And it made me so grateful just to to realize how blessed I have been in my acquaintances in life. And um, having a very grounded and godly husband and children that how did you re- how did he respond when he found out it it is interesting I'll, i don't always share this because it's kind of a family a slice of our family but i i took a picture when everybody was off the airplane all was done engine shut down electricity battery off uh, i took a picture of the engine from the uh, door of the aircraft and i sent it to my husband and i just said um landed single engine in Philly uh, or PHL, you know, of course. And he thought it was something that had happened in the system. Cause when something happens with Southwest, we'll so often, uh, you know, take a snapshot and, and send it. And he, he said, is that, is that yours? And, and I said, no, it belongs to Gary Kelly, but I flew it. <laughs> and, and, um, and he said, good job. I'll talk to you later. Cause he knew there was lots of things that happened after that. And then I, I called my mom and she said, Oh, praise God. I know he prepared you for such a time as this. And so her, her just confidence in me was wonderful. And then my son, who is a, a senior in high school and had just gotten his uh, private license. I sent that same text and picture to him. And he was not really supposed to have his phone out in school, but he texted me back and said, uh, I always land with one engine. <laughs> kind of like, so. <laughs> and uh, I texted him back, you're not qualified to land with any more than well, one Well, he engine. does. But uh, so, you know, the, the smart aleck uh, of, of my son kind of came out in that. And then my daughter, when I, I contacted her, she was very loving and, and, supportive about mom, you know, I hate that it happened to you, but you're the woman to take care of it. And so it was nice to have that kind of a cheer squad. behind. I just wanted to say, it sounds like everyone had a lot of confidence in you and also weren't really surprised that you made it through. <laughs> Did you have time to process what happened? Do you feel it's a, it, it was a trauma that you needed to process or did you do that internally or how you know, did that work? Kate, I, I have to say, this is one of those kind of odd things that I can't explain, but I, I never had any nightmares. I feel like sometimes when there's a lot of weight on your shoulders, you have a lot more traction in your feet. And I feel like there was so much that mentally I was dealing with and problem solving at the time. And then afterwards, I think if you read my book, you know, I start my day with uh, usually a thermos of of tea, my Bible, and I head out to feed, you know, and as I did this morning and feed our little horses, goats, the deer, the tortoises, the dog. And um, so 
kind of having that time at the at the feet of Jesus every morning, it can really keep you grounded through some ugly stuff and through some good stuff and through some stuff that just kind of hits you sideways. So having a husband that does the same job I do and a, a company that was wonderful uh, to us about giving the whole crew a year off with pay. I mean, that's unprecedented. Right. Um, truly unprecedented. It gave us all time to process the way we needed to. For me, it was working. So I, that's when I wrote, that's when I wrote the book. And I do think writing the book and having to process things and put it into words is very cathartic. I think it's, right. it's good for us. I'm a journaler and I, I have found my whole life since fourth grade that if I have something that's just turning in my mind or upsetting me, a lot of times when I write it down, it becomes into perspective. And you were a female Navy fighter pilot and one of the first women to fly the F-A-18 Hornet. Right. And your journey was everything but easy. There were multiple occasions when male officers actively tried to prevent you from flying because they simply believed that women shouldn't fly. <laughs> I will leave all the examples for listeners to read in your book, but they are appalling and you dealt with those situations in such a calm and elegant way. The world of aviation has changed a lot over the past 30 years, but we're still stuck with 6%. And only 6% of all aviators are women. And some of those sentiments I mentioned earlier still linger in the field. What advice would you give to women who encounter those same situations? You know, I would say never let an offense get in the way of a great opportunity. When there is a, a wall erected in front of you, either by a person or it seems like a situation, don't stop at the wall. Go sideways, go up, go down. But I think about if whenever I was told at career day, women don't fly for a living. It's not a career for you. If I had just demanded, no, I know I could do it. I know, you know, I think I would have had a different path than just coming home and sharing with my folks. Hey, I, you know, I guess it's just a hobby for girls. I don't know why, but they said women don't do this for a living. And my parents said, well, maybe that's so they didn't, they didn't know. And they said, but get your education because everything that you have thought of that you would want to do in life, you need an education for. So go get that. And whenever you keep your feet moving, I think it's kind of a football term, you know, keep your feet moving. Even if you feel tackled, keep your feet moving. And uh, you'd be surprised like by continuing with the education. Then I was in a place where I, I was qualified to apply for uh, the military, uh, the Navy flight program. If I had stopped and really tried to get into a program out of high school, I wouldn't have had what I needed to pursue it. So there's been a number of things that I really wanted to do and was told no. For instance, you know, whenever I wanted to fly guns as an instructor, which all my peers did, and my commanding officer pulled me uh, after I'd done all my studies and tests and said, no, no, I am not having a girl in my, in my cockpits in my Navy, in my squadron. So I got sent to teach out of control flight, something everyone hated. And it turned out to be some of the best training I ever had in the Navy. But also 
then I got to fly guns in A7s and F-18s. So, you know, it wasn't the end of that quest. It was just a little diversion. Right. So you would say keep moving. And I think that's definitely a great way to approach life. Um, I always have to think of Newton's first law of motion, right? A body in motion stays in motion. A body at rest stays at rest. And it's so important to keep moving because out of nothing comes and grows nothing. Right. And there was a saying uh, by one of the Navy captains that I so admired, uh, Captain Maslowski, and he said, I don't mind giving rudder directions, but I won't give propulsion commands. Right. <laughs> you know, and I thought that is that is a good key in life. That should be on a tile, I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, and what advice would you give for the new generation of aviators? Oh, release the parking brake. Go for it. I I can't tell you how I think exciting aviation is when you are getting into it today, because there is a such a a need for pilots, mechanics, technicians, aircraft controllers. Um, so often those jobs they're exciting and fun, but it's a small market and it's hard to get a job in it. Today, we are, we are coming up on one of the biggest deficits of pilots, technicians ever. Uh, they anticipate, I think it's within uh, 20, about 2025 or so, we'll be about 100,000 pilots short. And, you know, that's in all spectrums, general aviation, military aviation, commercial aviation. So that means the jobs will be out there. They're jobs you can support a family on. Uh, in aviation, often when you get started and you get your qualifications, then you fly for a commuter, let's say, and and it's very low pay because you're earning your hours and they know you need your hours. And But now they're offering signing bonuses. You know, it's a job that I never got tired of in 35 years because you never fly in the same sky. It, it's a different flight even in the same day. So there's always problem solving. I just am so excited for those that are thinking about aviation or getting into it. And Women in Aviation Advisory Board was a, a board made up by President Trump to look into why aren't there more women in aviation? And find the barriers and get rid of them. And I was put on that board. There's 30 ladies from all walks of aviation. And in the two years of research that we've done, and we're getting ready to turn in our, our recommendation to the FAA and Congress in February, I have been amazed at so many different avenues, not only of aviation, but the scholarships available here in the U.S., Please know, just start digging. I would start with Women in Aviation, EAA, uh, AOPA, and just keep Googling. I hope soon that our recommendation is to have a place that you can go, you know, a one-stop shop so that if you are interested in aviation, I know for a fact, if you're younger than 18, then go online to Young Eagles at the EAA site and and follow the prompts, you'll get a free flight by a Young Eagle pilot near you, he or she. We will sign you up for free ground school. And I believe your first lesson will be free as well. So all those frees, mom and dad certainly can't oppose. <laughs> 
I think that's a very important thing for new aviators to know. Don't refrain from learning to fly because either you or your parents don't have the resources. Because there is financial help out there. There are scholarships. There are funds. There are grants available. So uh, that's excellent. On to something else. Tammy Jo, you've been a committed student and worker all your life. And we've talked a lot about your accomplishments and your achievements. But we haven't talked about the way. And I also couldn't find it anywhere in your book the way that you approach periods of intense studying and work. So I just want to walk through a day in your life when you're preparing for, you know, let's say an exam or a rating or a project. What's your approach? You know, do you create a schedule? Um, Are you an early riser? What do you eat? What are your habits? It's interesting that you ask, you know, how do you start your day? What do you eat for breakfast? Because those are really important. Uh, I I don't think I knew that as a college student, but you truly learn that when you have a serious project ahead of you. And so I, I start my day, uh, you know, with, with a good cup of tea usually and I, and a Psalms, uh, or what I happen to currently be reading in scripture and, and prayer. And then I, I usually have something pretty, um, I don't, I don't eat sugar. I just, not that I wouldn't like to, but I just have an allergy to it. So I, I avoid the sugary white flowered things and go for either rolled oats. Uh, I like eggs, you know, uh, things like that, but something solid, not big at all, but something solid in the morning. And then studying, we're at the point in, in the movie project that uh, the director and writer of the script is getting details. So I'm pulling through my Navy box and I found my flip cards for weapons in A7. What is the movie project? Oh, um, they're doing a movie uh, from my book and I, I'll let them announce no. who they are later, but they've been incredibly generous in wanting Dean and I's input. And that's so exciting. So that it should be, I hope very authentic, you know, as far I say authentic, it should be It should be real. So I was digging through those and I found my flip cards from A7 weapons training. And um, one of the things I do, whether I'm studying for weapons or a Southwest Airlines checkride, is I look at what I need to study and then I divide it. I And then I look at how much time I have. You know, if I have 60 days and... uh, I divide it into 60 swaths of studying. And then I give myself a few days at the end to review the highlights from my studying. And I I don't consider myself a big brain, so <laughs> I need to study. I, I don't, you know, I have a good memory for some things and some things I really have to rotate through quite often. So I, I just, the things that I find in my flip cards and I make my own usually just the ones and I go through, I often go through them while I'm uh, running on the treadmill or walking um, on our road or whatever activity seems to cement things into my mind. So I, I think better when I'm physically active and uh, I'll go through my flip cards. The ones that I miss, I keep in a stack and go through them again later 
uh, in the day and then add a group of flip cards from the next day's study. And that way, the ones that trip me up soon become the ones that I've seen most often. So that's, that's kind of my approach to study. Interesting. And then when you've achieved a goal, do you celebrate? Um, and how do you celebrate? I usually, honestly, one of the ways it's going to sound so boring, but <laughs> one of the ways I'd love to celebrate is um, just to have some time by myself outside, uh, whether it's feeding animals and outdoor activities. That's not boring at all. It's actually a, a quite a nice way to celebrate. Extraordinary achievements highlight your life. Um, but you've also experienced times when you didn't know what your next steps was, were going to be. You wanted to fly but got rejected by the Air Force and the Navy. You did your pre-med but then couldn't afford veterinary school. You got into agriculture but realized that this too was a male-dominated world. And you couldn't get a job. As you describe in your book, you were in a lull that lasted for two years. What would your advice be to people who are currently a little lost in life? You know, that is a wonderful question because I'm not sure that there's anyone who hasn't had a lull somewhere in life and feel like I'm not sure where I go from here. For myself, I was the only person in my family who had ever gone to college and graduated that time. And I was the only one in my family who didn't have a real job. So of course, that made me feel a little bit uh, small. And it was just my my degree was in agribusiness and pre-med. I realized I couldn't go on to vet school because of finances. And so I looked into the agricultural field, which, you know, having a father who treated me as an equal, I just grew up not realizing how many lines were drawn in the modern world. And so aviation and agriculture were uh, very similar in the fact that men were the ones that had the positions in the county extension office and in uh, the land bank offices. So whenever I interviewed for those jobs, I had all the answers, you know, even stray answers like, well, how much do you think a bushel of wheat weighs? You know, and I knew because we'd grown some wheat and I knew what a bushel was and things like that. But I didn't get a job and I kept not getting a job and I substitute taught. So often I quote my mom, but my dad was such an incredible influence in my life. And they said, Timmy Joe, you know, you, you really enjoy your time with the kids. Why don't you go back, get your teaching credentials and, and then spend some time with the kids. So I headed back. I, I borrowed money. I had no money. I borrowed everything I needed to get back into grad school and get my teaching certificate at the same time. And it was, at, it was in Western New Mexico University in Silver City. And because I just kept going, I kept trying to find something that I could plug into, it put me in a different location. And when I just couldn't get rid of that pole of aviation and I contacted the, the Navy recruiter one more time, I was near a different Navy recruiter who was super positive and dug into what my scores were and said, Timmy Joe, you don't need to take the test again. You did fine. Just come in and let's get your application put together. I'll help you. Just plan a whole day on your way back from Christmas vacation. Stop here in Albuquerque and we'll get it put together. So if I had stayed where I was, I would have had the same recruiter who had told me no before. So it's it's kind of funny, that whole thing of just keep moving, keep trying what, what you can try. If that path is blocked, 
find another path that lull, which I at the time thought was the worst time, almost the worst time of my life. Those two years gave me time to reconnect with a little brother who was going into first grade when I went to college. And so having two years, uh, Deshane and I became uh, a real brother and sister, really friends at that time. That two-year wait also put me in a place in the Navy to meet the most wonderful man in my life, Dean Schultz. And it also put me in timing to fly A7s and go through weapons training, something that women hadn't done before because the combat exclusion policy was firmly in place. Women were not flying combat, so they did not spend the money to put you through weapons training. But my skipper saw the horizon uh, changing and sent Pam and I through weapons training. And then the F-18, Pam and I were the first women to fly the F-18 uh, in the Navy, uh, Melanie or Lori Melling also flew it that same year in as a test pilot. But those two years that seemed to be wasted in life were really positioning me for the very best to come. Absolutely. That's great advice. Um, over to your entrepreneurial endeavors. Uh, you are very entrepreneurial. You are an inspirational speaker, an author, a pilot. What were the skills that you accumulated during flight training that helped you be a better entrepreneur? I think part of it is compartmentalization, which is a part of aviation, and also realizing there were so many times I thought, well, I just thought I couldn't do it. Uh, I didn't think I had the the brain to wrap around it. I remember getting my my books in Navy flight training when I got through boot camp, got to Corpus Christi, and they gave us our syllabus and all the books that we would need for the next six months. And I think I had to use a hand truck to get them back to my room. It was a stack, and they go, "Ah, oh, you know, you'll you'll be memorizing this in the next six months." And I thought, I don't think so. And I just sat down once I got in my room and cried. And then I realized, all right, you know what? I'm just going to do this. I'm going to eat the elephant one bite at a time. And if I don't get it done, I w it won't be because I didn't really try. Facing something that you think you can't do and just putting your head down and then, you know, raising your head at the end of it, realizing I made it. I mean, I not only made it, I was, you know, like number two in my class. This is shocking to me. I was just hoping to survive. I, so I think aviation can really stretch your borders. And so I think that is, is important in an entrepreneurial venture is realizing you do have to stretch your borders. As you know, as a pilot, there's, there's more to flying than just handling the airplane. And not only communicating with ATC or if you have a crew, there's also that whole issue of you're mentally well beyond where your airplane is or you're out of the game. You know, you fly hundreds of miles ahead of where you're actually flying so that your decisions that you make are thought through before you get there. I know with just some of the ventures in the last three years, planning and making sure that what I'm doing today has a real purpose. And I think that's one of the things that flying definitely makes you have an economy of an economy of mind and motion. 
because you don't have time or bandwidth to do what's extraneous and not purposeful. And uh, so I think I think that might be what I have found aviation to kind of help groom our minds for the entrepreneurial uh, ventures that we want to do. Some last questions about your personal life, because for a long time, you balanced raising two kids and flying as a captain for Southwest Airlines. How were you able to do both things successfully? You know, Kate, that is the number one question I get from young ladies, usually when we're one-on-one, because even among women, we tend to judge a woman when she says, now, what if I want to get married and have a family? How does that work with, especially being a pilot where you're, you're gone, you're, you're not just at work during the day, you're out of the country sometimes for three or four days. And I think one of the things that we as women need to realize is, you know, that is one of the sacred gifts that God has given us is to be a mom if we want to be and, you know, to be in love and be married. So I would say the way that I wound up making all that work, and it was something that I didn't plan far ahead. I think when I was first looking at aviation, I didn't care about getting married or or being a mom. I wanted those things, but I felt like I don't have any control about when or if I meet somebody. So I'm just going for it. The bottom line is what we prioritize, we will always have time for. Uh, You never get to the end of the day and go, oh, I wish I would have drank water or had a meal today. I mean, most of us find time to do the things that are of a priority. And also choosing, first of all, who I married made a lot of that possible. Marrying a Renaissance man who finds nothing beneath him or above him. I mean, he is just the most selfless person I know. So that was a big step in making it possible, but also choosing a company that had a flexible scheduling. I don't think I could have stayed flying and raised a family the way I wanted to raise my family in any other airline than Southwest. We have the option of a bidding for a quality of life versus max pay. And you can do that online at a weekly pace for many years, well, 20 years, I would look at the kids' schedule and give away trips that were on top of uh, recitals, or I coached volleyball and track throughout my kids' years. So often I would give away all of my trips. And after Dean left on his trip, I would look at, is everybody healthy? Are all the big school projects done? And then I would pick up a trip and Dean would be home in a day or two. And then I would get home. And we always, uh, as we got more senior, were able to do it, tried to make sure we were home, all of us together, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And Dean would usually leave Sunday night or Monday. Having that time and not flying opposite schedules. I know a lot of people have to do that for childcare purposes, or they just choose to do that. For Dean and I, we really wanted time when we were a family, when we were together. And and also, it's very old-fashioned advice, and it will sound mundane, but it will give you so much freedom. And that is live below your means. Because we budgeted below what our income was, if the kids were sick or something, 
then I didn't pick up a trip and I stayed home that week. And you can only do that if you can financially afford to. So living below your means is probably one of the biggest enablers, I feel like, to give you that freedom to raise, raise a family. Uh, your parents evidently did a great job raising you. And you mentioned them a lot throughout your book. And you really say that they were your heroes. What was it about your upbringing that made you so fearless and such a such a badass, really? <laughs> what did they do? And what, what advice would you give parents who are listening right now to raise kids, you know, the way you turned out? The main ingredient would be love. And... I think one of the blessings my parents gave me was an uncomplicated childhood. Uh, I'll let everyone interpret that the way that they like. I think busyness is a real enemy to happiness sometimes. And I'm not a person that sits still, but I think we can we can allow ourselves to get too involved in our kids, you know, in too many teams or projects or things that really kind of steal the joy of childhood away. I had time to dream. I had time to just go out and play in the dirt and, you know, make mud pies. And I think sometimes we fall short in trying to give our kids too much. I know that my parents gave me chores since the beginning of time, but they always gave me authority when they gave me responsibility. So I felt big about having those responsibility. I felt invested in having those responsibilities. So allowing our children to have some time to problem solve, because that's what life is. And it's addictive. It's it's fun. And the element of love, I volunteer at a school here in town. It's an orphanage made up of kids that are taken from their homes because of violence and lack of attention. And I can tell you, they respond to love. And I think we all do. Demi Jo, what new projects are you working on at the moment? What can we expect? Yes. Well, I mentioned the Women in Aviation Advisory Board, which will be submitting their work. I'm hopeful that that will open some avenues for women in aviation. We have been stuck at 7% women for decades. So I'm excited to get a little more word out and, and do it in schools, AOPA which is the largest group of uh, organization of pilots, has rolled out this incredible high school program that is designed and developed by educators. And it's free. It's, a, it's an elective that you can offer at your school. They will also train you for free. Embry-Riddle has given it their endorsement and it, will be, it can be counted towards teachers continuing education. So that, I think, would get it into the high aviation, tactically even, into the high school where you get to work with things and, and build things. And so that's exciting. There's a movie being made uh, from my book and the people that they have pulled into the project is is just really wonderful. I'll I'll give you one name. Yes. <laughs> I didn't dare to ask, but yeah, yeah. Okay, go ahead. He's wonderful. I know the uh, the producer and director and those people would like to make their own announcement when it gets closer, but John Logan Pearson is one of the people, uh, I would say a very important hinge point in this project. We count him a friend as well as somebody who's working at producing the movie. So I think it should be encouraging for people not only to uh, get into aviation, it's not all about flight 13. 
1380, there'll certainly be something of that in there, obviously. But it, I think it'll expose a little bit more of just some of the thrills and the fun of flying. And I hope it encourages ladies to get out there and set their hair on fire airborne. And what's the timeline for that movie? I think it should be, I'm really guessing here, but it will within the next two years. That's very exciting. Demi Jo, I really enjoyed having this conversation with you. You're a wonderful person and so inspiring. Thank you, Kate. I have enjoyed our time together. For everyone at home, please purchase Demi Jo's book, Nerves of Steel. It's available online and in the bookstore. In the next episode, I'll be speaking with Kit Kemp, interior design superstar and founder of the Firmdale Hotels.